pandemic or not, the 2020 election cycle continues in full All right, we've been talking about this for a few weeks now because this has been the story for a few weeks now, at least a few weeks now, more than a few weeks. In fact, Joe Biden leading Donald Trump in the national horse race polls for the presidential race. What you're looking at here. analytics says there's a strong chance Donald Trump will win re-election. Anyway. 75 million Americans have voted already. That's more than half of the entire vote four years ago. We are in the very last stretch of a very high stakes election and there's a lot to navigate. To help me do so, discuss what is currently on the candidates' minds, who is leading, what that means, and ultimately how this long-awaited Tuesday will look like, I'm joined by a very special guest who knows the White House from very up close. Margaret Taleb is the White House and politics editor at Axios, where she oversees the White House politics and election coverage. She's also a CNN political analyst and a Harvard Kennedy School lecturer. In other words, we couldn't be in better hands. I'm your host, Zoya Soroy, and this is The Dive, the podcast where we bring you experts from Harvard and beyond to help you understand the world a little better. Thank you so much for being on the dive. I know it has been a long time coming. I first wanted to ask you about your experience covering the White House because um, apart from your current job at Axios, you've been also a White House reporter for Bloomberg. And so you've been doing it for a really long time. What is it, what is it like? What is a normal day in a White House reporter's life? Well, I think you have to ask, what was a normal day in a White House reporter's life before coronavirus and what was a normal day after coronavirus because uh, it's just a dramatically different world, just like it is outside of reporting for anyone in the world. Uh, Today, if you cover the White House, my reporters who cover the White House, um, uh, access to the White House areas, even where reporters are allowed to be, is dramatically limited. The White House Correspondents Association is trying to protect reporters from each other and protect reporters' public safety and health and uh, protect reporters from sickness inside the building, which, as we've seen, um, has impacted a lot of the president's own closest staff. At least 24 people linked to the White House have tested positive. Uh, When you come to the White House as a reporter, you are wearing a mask. You are bringing sanitizer and bleach wipes. If you're going to be in proximity to the president, uh, you will very likely get a, um, at one point it was a temperature check, but now it's a coronavirus test as well. Um, so you have to decide how to protect your own safety. How, mu- how much do you stand back? Are you wearing a medical grade mask or are you just wearing like some cute cotton mask that you got? Uh, and you're constantly aware of your health and your movements. And uh, it has caused reporters to rely a lot more on um, reporting via telephone, email, text, signal, um, through sources rather than just showing up and seeing who you can catch in a hallway. Um, If you go back to before coronavirus times, reporting at the White House is a real mix of um, being at the building, talking to sources, um, again, on text or by phone, and and traveling um, with the president or where the president goes so that you can see what he's seeing and meet the people who are experiencing 
the president in person and see how different parts of the country are reacting to issues. Um, but for the last several months, March 13th was the magic day for most Americans. My administration is recommending that all Americans avoid gathering in groups of more than 10 people. Direct all individuals to shelter at their place of residence. Uh, the coronavirus has overshadowed absolutely everything else. And um, that has made it difficult for uh, this president in his efforts to try to turn the conversation toward political wedge issues like are white voters in the American suburbs safe or not after a summer of racial protests. The Democrats in D.C. have been and want to, at a much higher level, abolish our beautiful and successful suburbs. Your home will go down in value and crime rates will rapidly rise. It's uh, also made it a little harder for the president to uh, argue that he's the stronger candidate on the economy because the economy has been impacted by coronavirus and also because um, voters care about the economy, but they care a lot about the coronavirus. And our polling consistently shows that uh, even when they start to turn their attention away, it, it comes back to a referendum on the president's handling of the coronavirus. And for Joe Biden in this presidential race, um, that in, in many ways has helped him. It appears to have helped him. If you uh, watch over the summer uh, as people's experience with coronavirus set in, and then in particular uh, in the last couple of weeks when President Trump himself got sick and had to be taken to the hospital about something mm -hmm. that he initially dismissed as overhyped and has always said it'll be over soon, it'll be over soon. And then he got it and had to be pumped full of experimental drugs, drug cocktails and steroids. Um, that, um, that, that sustained focus on the coronavirus has so far redeemed Biden's decision to wear a mask, redeemed Biden's decision to uh, curtail large stadium campaigning, to Trump would say campaign from his basement, the Biden guys would say to use uh, technology to communicate with voters. Uh, but again, it's this, this referendum on the coronavirus and the president's handling of the coronavirus has um, subsumed all of the stuff you're usually talking about in an election year, um, like jobs or foreign policy or wing state politics or the unions. That's all there, but the coronavirus is lays over top of all of it. Yeah. And obviously, access to the White House is not something that most people have, most Americans have. Um, what do you think is one thing that people underestimate about the office of the president? This is a more of an esoteric answer, but the, the longer you study American politics, the more you realize how much executive power there is and how much the idea of the balance of power, the idea that the Congress and um, the executive branch and the judiciary are, are all like these co-equal branches of government. Um, in practice, really the presidency is by far the most powerful. I mean, Congress con controls the money, but if the president is from the same party as one of the chambers of Congress, and those members of Congress either respect or are afraid of the president's political power, then the executive has the most power. And that's what we've seen over the last couple of years. The president's got a lot of power. And so we've seen President Trump really test that. Every president tests their executive powers. President Obama tested his executive power. We are not just going to be waiting for legislation in order to make sure uh, that we're providing Americans uh, the kind of help that they need. Uh, I've got a pen 
and I've got a phone. Uh, President Bush tested his executive power in terms of a president's ability to wage war that's undeclared and so forth. So this is not a new idea, but we've just seen Trump take it to new levels. And we've seen um, the, the Republicans who control the Senate um, sometimes be a check on his power, sometimes sanctions on Russia or refusing to um, uh, just abrogate the filibuster, but for the most part, uh, help him to wield that executive power. And the election now is just uh, some days away. Um, how do you think that what's now the most important thing on Trump's mind and what's the most important thing on Biden's mind? Well, the most important thing on Trump's mind, obviously, is um, being able to energize his base and being able to show a sense of vitality on his part. Uh, for him, like one of the biggest nightmares about catching the virus and being hospitalized, other than proving that it wasn't a hoax and that anyone could get it, because if the president can get it, anyone can get it, was the idea that he somehow appear weak because he <laughs> couldn't leave the hospital. And then he left the hospital as soon as he could, maybe before he should have. Uh, and, but then he couldn't leave the White House for several days until a doctor would declare that he wasn't contagious. And he could not wait to get back on the road because for the president, if you're home, you're losing. And if you're on the road, you're winning. And uh, you can see already in his initial return to the rally stage, Uh, how adamant he is to be out there trying to get, you know, tossing masks to the crowd. I'm feeling great. I don't know about you. How is everyone feeling? Good? Trying to give this picture of a, of a person full of vitality who the coronavirus couldn't stop. And for the president, it is that image of strength or irrepressibility. He doesn't care if people call him reckless or they say it's not responsible to be doing these rallies or he doesn't care about any of that. He just cares about showing that uh, this didn't slow him down and that he's going to be out there fighting for every last vote. And just to follow up on, on that, why are the rallies so important for him? I mean, surely if the, there's a base supporting him now only a few days away, whether you rally them or not shouldn't be that important. Or am I getting something wrong here? Well, we'll see. I mean, we'll see after the results come in whether this was the right philosophy. But I can just tell you that, as everybody knows, the president was a reality TV star before he was a president. My name's Donald Trump. I was billions of dollars in debt, but I fought back and I won. I'm looking for The Apprentice. And took that sensibility with him. For the president, Donald Trump believes that it's all about the show and that it's all about the visuals, and that putting thousands of people cheering, waving signs around a person makes them look appealing and strong and like a winner, right? That's his, it's, it's all about the image to him, and it's all about whether the image shows he's strong or that he looks like a winner, and that's what he's going for. Um, but there's something more subtle to it also, If he's built his brand on these rallies and all of a sudden in the last two weeks, he has to stop the rallies, mm -hmm. that would show something different. It would show that he was weakened and it, maybe it would show that he was wrong. And he, he can't abide either one of those two scenarios. And so for him, it wasn't a choice. There was no, for some of his team, it was a choice. Is this really the right thing to do? Should he go out there? For him, it was not a choice at all. Um, for Joe Biden, it's a very different um, calculation. Joe Biden thinks that he was right to, uh, not just politically right, but morally right from a matter of public health, not, not to encourage thousands of people in, uh, you know, 
swing states to gather around him, chanting and waving signs, uh, because he thought that would get them sick, even if he could be protected from it. He thinks that the president getting sick and being hospitalized vindicates that theory, and he wants to keep the conversation on coronavirus and nothing else. And when you see him being asked questions about the Supreme Court and court packing and all the stuff, like it's not just that he doesn't want to hit the bees, you know, nest, hit the hornet's nest and anger one wing of his party versus the other, is that he doesn't want to be talking about anything other than the coronavirus. My team of public health experts. We looked at the latest reported data on how it indicates that we're on an upward slope of a bigger wave of confirmed infections. The minute he takes the bait and starts talking about something else, he's off topic. If he's talking about the coronavirus, he's winning is how he sees it. For Biden, the real challenge is turnout. We saw in 2016 that Hillary Clinton wasn't able to turn out key parts of her voting block and that it cost her in those three pivotal states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Joe Biden, if you look at the national polling numbers, you can see that where the mood of the country in general is, the mood of the country in general consistently in these polls is that a majority of Americans don't want Donald Trump to be president again. But that's not how elections are run in the United States. It's the electoral college. The vote matters state by state. And in the states that are the swing states, that gap between who wants Biden and who wants Trump is much closer. But it's it's distant enough, Biden has enough of a lead in those polls that if voters in those states did what the polls say now, Biden could win. Biden holds a stronger polling lead in each of the three pivotal Midwestern states once called the Democrats' blue wall. Biden leads by nine points in Michigan, five and a half points in Wisconsin, and 4.8 points in Pennsylvania. Donald Trump won all three states by less than a point each in 2016. And so Biden's trick is turning those voters out, turning out young voters, turning out senior citizens, turning out voters of color, turning out women, turning out white college educated men, and turning them out in the states where, in all states, but in the states where it matters the most. And for Biden, one of the real complications is that because of coronavirus, because Democrats are more worried about catching coronavirus, than our Republicans, Democrats, way more than Republicans, have turned to early voting, absentee voting, mail-in voting. And some of those mail ballots have a much higher rejection rate historically than um, voting in person. And so for Biden, one of the big challenges is hoping enough people vote in person that those numbers look stronger on election night and have less chance of being thrown out, hoping that the people who cast their ballots by mail did it the right way and can't be challenged. And just in general, hoping that people turned out to vote, period. Because if Joe Biden loses this race, it's it's not going to be because people changed their minds and rallied around Trump. It's going to be because the people who said they would rather have Biden than Trump did not successfully vote, whether they didn't turn out or whether they cast a ballot by mail and it was rejected. And so the real challenge for Joe Biden is not going to be changing his message. It's going to be sticking with the message, but turning people's anger about the coronavirus into an actual vote that counts. So the lack of a vaccine right now um, is helping Biden or the current state of coronavirus around the world is, I guess, helping Biden because it's bad and people are at more feel the urgency of having someone with a different kind of leadership style to guide them through this. Uh, certainly, I think the political implications of of the impact of the coronavirus in the United States and in the world um, 
have hurt President Trump, and by hurting President Trump, they help Joe Biden. But you're asking a, a subtle but an important question, which is Americans were sick and dying and people couldn't go back to school and businesses were closed. Would any president have a hard time mm. dealing with it? And I think the answer is probably yes, but there is an added fact in the case of President Trump that he spent months publicly diminishing the impact of the virus. And one thing that's for certain, don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. Publicly messaging to people, it's your choice whether you want to wear a mask. It's much more important to go back to work. The economy is more important than health. Um, you know, a bad economy could make health matters worse. And that his public message was out of step with facts that he knew to be true behind the scenes. Mm. That in making this case, in order to try to prop up the economy, in part because he knew that a bad economy would be very damaging to his reelection chances, that in the process of doing that, uh, he did not prevent and may have uh, fanned the flames of more people getting sick and sicker and spreading it. And him catching it himself and then it's spreading throughout the White House is kind of uh, been the meta kind of proof of this. The question is, uh, certainly that has hurt him in polling. The question is, will it hurt him enough to fundamentally um, put the election out of reach for him? And, and we won't know until the results are in. Exactly. And I wanted to ask you something related to that because election results most likely won't be called on the night by midnight, but it'll take longer. How do you think that November is going to look like? And how long will it take to get the results? Uh, you know, you're asking the hardest questions. <laughs> there are like literally commissions of people who are gathering to try to figure this stuff out. But look, it the thing about elections in the U.S. is that um, even though the election people are paying the most attention to is the presidential election, elections are largely not a federal issue. They are largely state by state issues. And so there are different rules in different states for everything around elections, including um, what the rules are for mail-in voting, including when those votes are counted. If you live in Arizona, Colorado, Florida, or New Hampshire, your ballot has to be received by election day. In Texas, it could be the next day. Georgia and Pennsylvania give you essentially till the end of election week. So, in, so some states can count their ballots um, as they come in and announce them contemporaneously, like when the polls close. So in Florida, you know, depending on how the systems work, we actually may know pretty early what those um, mail-in ballots look like. In other states, uh, particularly states that have um, less of a history of mail-in voting, um, it might be several days. And so um, depending on how some of those big states break and depending on how close it is to whether you need to know the answers to the mail-in ballots, all of that will have an impact on what we know on election night and what we don't. I mean, I don't think anyone expects like final, final results on election night. This isn't going to be that kind of an election. But whether we all go to bed that night with a pretty good understanding of what the outcome is or whether it's completely up in the air, um, I think we just don't know the answer to that yet. And to your next question, um, when will we know, you know, Within the last couple of months, and I've been on many of these phone calls with election experts and advocates and litigators and secretaries of state in different states and news organizations, and 
Um, the kind of early guidance from a lot of folks that I was hearing is that if we, if and if we don't know, you know, on that night, we could know within the first three or four days. Um, but it's also possible we won't. And what does that depend on? It depends on a lot of stuff. It depends on um, how clear cut the results are in those key states. Like, mm-hmm. is this is it a five point gap? Is it a half a percentage point? Is it a blowout? Um, and in which direction, right? Um, so it depends on how big the gaps are in some of these states. And it depends on the litigation efforts, how successful they are, whether a lot really does wind up moving through the court systems. And, you know, in 2000, it was um, it was one state, right? It was a county and a state yeah. that went to the Supreme Court. But if you have the prospect for lawsuits that matter in two, three, four, or five states, um, we could be in it for a little bit longer. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I don't. I don't think it's necessarily true that it's going to be December and we have no idea who won. Yeah, I think it's likely we will know, if not the first night within a few days, but we might not. And um, you know, I think slowly but surely, Americans are all coming to understand that that this is going to be an election that requires um, some patience and an understanding of the nuances that may make it difficult to know the outcome immediately. You said that I was asking you the toughest question, but I think this one is... Okay. (laughs) Um, A lot of people are talking about the possibility of the results not being accepted. I want to ask you here on the stage tonight, do you make the same commitment that you will absolutely, sir, that you will absolutely accept the result of this election? I will look at it at the time. I'm not looking at anything now. I'll look at it at the time by the people, by the president. What's your take on that? I think that this is another question that we have to be prepared for something that is kind of ugly and unknown territory, but not to assume that that's the case. And Mm -hmm. a lot of how um, the public at large reacts will be shaped by the results themselves, by the news coverage of the results, and by the way other um, players in politics react, um, including lawmakers from both parties. So I think if, I think in particular, Senate Republicans and Republican office holders are going to be important to watch for cues about how they're handling this. I also think that most of the public will accept the results based on facts Mm -hmm. and that the concern is about whether, well, it depends, but I think it depends on the outcome, but I think the more prevalent concern is that there would be a minority of voters who might not want to accept election results, but that they could be a very vocal minority. And it could lead to unrest and cause unrest. But I think we're seeing, it does depend on the outcomes. Like we've seen polling about young voters where huge numbers of young voters are telling pollsters that if the president is reelected, they will take to the streets and protest. Um, Those young voters are not saying the same if Biden was elected. They're not promising a protest. There are members of Trump's base that, uh, you know, are more likely to protest if President Trump were not to win re-election. 
um, and would be perfectly happy if Biden lost the election and would accept those results. So I think who is likely to protest depends on who is declared the winner or not winner. Mm -hmm. And the degree of ambiguity is like directly proportionate to the likelihood for unrest. If it is an extremely close race that's open to legal challenge and interpretation, there's much likelier chance for a powder keg moment. Whereas if the results are clear and unambiguous in one direction or the other, maybe harder or at least um, if not harder to protest, there may be a smaller group who will be moved to protest. But this is certainly an election in which we are um, preparing for things that we're not used to and trying to get ready for the unknown, trying to stay calm and not feed uh, the notion of drama and accidentally create drama in the process. But um, this is such an emotionally charged election on top of such an emotionally charged time to be an American that I think the combination of the referendum on President Trump and the pandemic at the same time have just raised the stakes immeasurably. Margaret Talev, thank you so much for being a guest on The Dive. It's such a pleasure to always listen to you in class and out of class. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us on The Dive. To get the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at The Dive Podcast and subscribe. <laughs>